We'll go ahead and uh, turn in your Bible, if you've got one with you, to the book of James. We've been in James for a while now, and we're, we're in the last chapter, so we're kind of rounding the corner uh, in the home stretch. As Pastor David, uh, I believe, mentioned last week, um, here in a couple of weeks, in a few weeks when we finish James, we're going to start a series on uh, the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. And so we're excited about that, and we're going to have kind of all, all of the pastors rotating between the two uh, locations to do that, and uh, um, it's, it's going to be really exciting. And I think James has been quite exciting uh, as well. It's funny how sometimes as, you know, the preacher, um, you know, I, I feel like sometimes God is speaking directly to me in this, whether he's speaking to you or not, I trust that he is. But even if he isn't, uh, there have been times in the book of James where, um, you know, God has been speaking to me uh, and things in my life. And so it's been good, and I hope that you all um, have enjoyed it. Last week, uh, as we began chapter 5, uh, Pastor David unpacked uh, the first seven verses about the warning to the rich. And, and James has this style of writing that, that seems like he's just kind of going from topic to topic to topic to topic as maybe uh, things enter his mind. And I think he's a little more intentional than that, but, but it can kind of seem that way. And so um, in these first few verses of chapter 5, James is not, not so much talking to the rich as much as he's talking about the rich uh, to the people in the church. And, um, you know, a, a popular narrative today, uh, just with our current cultural moment, if you will, is just this idea of oppressors and the oppressed. And in last week's passage, James was talking to the oppressed about the oppressors. And he laid down kind of this heavy warning uh, to the rich. I mean, we've got to remember that he's writing this letter to the church, and so as he's talking about uh, the worldly rich, he's not saying that being rich in and of itself is a bad thing as much as he's talking about the way that the worldly rich acts towards the poor in the church. And, and what Pastor David did a good job with, and I think what James was trying to do, was unpack for us this idea that, that God hears the cries of the oppressed. Uh, it may not always feel like that uh, in our world, in our society, but God hears the cries of the oppressed, and there is a day coming where God is going to make all of the wrong things right. There's a day coming when God will finally have uh, redemption as it's meant to be, where, where all of the terrible things that have happened to you and to me uh, are going to be made right. And so today, um, verses 7 through 12, we're going to look at a little more of that, uh, but in this, uh, it seems that, that James is speaking um, in the first section about the rich to the poor, and in this section, he's speaking to the poor, uh, trying to give them some encouragement. And so let's go ahead and read, starting in verse 7. We'll read the first couple of verses. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So last week, Pastor David kind of jumped a little bit into verse 7 with this encouragement, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So, so as you're being oppressed in James's plea by the, the worldly rich, as, as your employers are being unfair to you, um, maybe not even paying you your wages, James' encouragement is to be patient, therefore. 
in light of your suffering, be patient because the coming of the Lord will happen. Now, this was written about 2,000 years ago, and James is saying the coming of the Lord is near. 2,000 years have passed, and, and the Lord hasn't returned. Um, I don't know about your definition of near. This kind of makes my definition of near struggle a bit, right? 2,000 years is a long time uh, to wait for the Lord. But the Bible tells us that uh, to the Lord a day is as if it were a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years as if it were a day. And so what we learn from that is that God's time frame is not our time frame. God doesn't uh, know time like we know time. He's not constrained by time like you and I are. God doesn't work on 24-hour days and 60-second minutes. Uh, he, he doesn't operate that way. And so James's encouragement in light of the suffering of the, the worldly poor who are in the church is to be patient. I don't know if you've ever been upset in your life and, and somebody has just told you to calm down, but that's usually not the right thing to say in the moment, is it? Here's James kind of seemingly saying the wrong thing in the moment. Right? He's like, I know you're suffering, I know that you're being oppressed, I know that, that life is not going well, and he just says, be patient. It's like, that's not what I want to hear. Right? I want somebody to sympathize with my plight. I want somebody maybe to tell me it's going to be okay. Right? I want somebody to be angry at the things I'm angry at. I don't want to be told to calm down. I don't want to be told, just be patient, brother. But this is what James is saying, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he gives us this analogy. He says, look at the farmer. I don't know if there's any farmers in the room. I'm not a farmer. I'm, I'm the farthest thing from a farmer. I've never tried to grow anything in my life. Uh, so I don't understand uh, experientially the plight of the farmer. But James draws our attention uh, to the farmer who waits, he says, for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. Now, one thing I was thinking about this week, this isn't necessarily a farming analogy, but a couple of years ago, um, I bought a little bit of cryptocurrency, or if you follow the, the crypto markets at all, um, just to test the waters. I wanted to see what all the, all the rage was about. I think I put $50 in uh, into cryptocurrency, and um, I have this app on my phone, and probably about every 30 minutes after I put my 50 bucks in, I'm, I'm pulling up my app. It's, it's $51, yes, right, 30 minutes. Oh, it's 49, what's going on here? Should I take my money out? Um, and, then, and then I just let it set for a long time because not much exciting was happening. Well, like in this last couple of weeks, um, there's been some excitement in the market. And I kid you not, I'm, I'm probably every 15 minutes, I'm, I'm pulling up my app on my phone. And then as I was reading this this week, I'm like, I wouldn't make a good farmer because I think I would just sit at the window like some, has something sprouted up yet. <laughs> I might go out there and look and, and you know, what, like something hasn't sprouted, what's wrong? And I'm looking at the sky and is it going to rain? Is it not? What, what's going on? I, I would make a terrible farmer. But James draws our attention to the farmer who is patient. And the farmer, the farmer doesn't have any control over the rain. Right? The farmer can't go out and, and do a rain dance. The farmer can't go out in his field, you know, God, please send the rain. Right? The farmer has no control over that. The farmer is at the mercy of nature, at the mercy really ultimately of God's hand. And James says, you also be patient. I think in order to understand this a little bit better, this analogy, we have to, we have to go back to Deuteronomy, uh, a book in the Old Testament. Um, I, I doubt many of you have read Deuteronomy through from beginning to end. It, it can be a little bit dry uh, a read. But in Deuteronomy chapter 11, 
verses 13 to 17, this is what God has to say. He says that if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all of your heart and all of your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your hearts be deceived and you turn aside to serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Now, what James isn't giving us here in saying this, he's not calling our attention to Deuteronomy to, to give us a formula, right? There, there's no formula that if I do these things, then God will do those things. Like, God doesn't work that way, right? If, if I'm good enough, if I obey God enough, then he's going to do things for me. There, there's no quid pro quo with God. If we do for him, he doesn't owe us anything, right? So, so James isn't calling our attention to that. Deuteronomy, the writer of Deuteronomy, isn't telling us that there's a formula here for success, but rather we're given a reminder that as we live in God's world, that we ought to live by God's ways, trusting him for everything. As we live in God's world, we ought to live by God's ways, trusting him for everything. And this was God's intention from the beginning. Even if we go further back than Deuteronomy, we go back into Genesis, the beginning of recorded history as we know it. God created everything that we see, all the heavens, all the earth, the birds, the bugs, the fish, the plants, the animals. And at the pinnacle of creation, God created humanity, created Adam and Eve. And three chapters into the book of Genesis, what happens? Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The creation rebelled against its creator. God gave Adam and Eve the earth and everything in it for their enjoyment. And he just gave them a simple command. Right? Be fruitful, multiply, like fill the earth, subdue it, and be caretakers of it. That, that, that's, the, that's the job that Adam and Eve had, right? They had one job. <laughs> Fill the earth, subdue it, take care of it. And, and God said, everything you see is for your pleasure, for your good, for your enjoyment, except don't eat the fruit off of this one tree. And of course, human nature, what happens? They became really curious about the one thing that God said don't do, right? That's how we are. And you may know the story that, that they were tempted, Eve was tempted by the devil and ate the fruit that God said, don't eat. And so, so creation rebelled against its creator. Everything was perfect for a time between creation and creator until that moment happened. Adam and Eve were to just be the caretakers and all of humanity in God's good design was that, that he would give us the earth for our enjoyment and that we were to just be the caretakers of his creation. Yet, humanity rebelled against their creator. And in that rebellion, sin entered into the world. There was no sin in the world before that moment. Sin entered the world through the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And as a result, we now are not, not just caretakers of the earth. We have to work. Right? Part, part of this curse is that, that work comes into the equation that wasn't in the equation before sin came into the world. 
We have to work now for what God originally intended to give us freely to enjoy. And the reason I bring this up is to point out, this is how things go when we live in God's world, but not according to God's ways. Right? Adam and Eve were living in God's world, and for a time living according to His ways, but when they decided to live their own way, the, the sin and the brokenness that we deal with today, right here and right now, the sin and the brokenness in your own life, is a result of creation rebelling against its creator, saying, I'm not going to live your way, I'm going to live my way. And this passage in Deuteronomy clearly shows us that if we will indeed obey God's commandments, the commandments to love the Lord our God and to serve Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, in other words, if we live in God's world according to God's way, things are going to go a whole lot better for us. And, and what I don't mean by that is, you know, we, we don't subscribe to a prosperity theology here. Again, there is no quid pro quo with God that says if you do these things, then you deserve these other things from God. But, but let us be reminded that God has created us with intent and created us with intent that we would live a certain way, that we would live in submission to Him, that we would follow His ways and not our own ways because when we follow our own ways, we see with Adam and Eve what happened when they followed their own way. And so as, J as James is calling us to be patient for the coming of the Lord and he calls our attention to the farmer who waits for the, the fruit of the ground to spring up and he waits for the rains, the, the spring rains and the fall rains over which he has no control, the, the idea here is that his patience comes from a trust in the Lord. His patience comes from a determination to live in God's world by God's ways, trusting God for the outcome of those ways. Does that make sense? And so like the farmer in verse 8 of James 5, he says, you also be patient. In other words, you also live in God's world according to God's ways, trusting God for the outcome of those ways. And then as James does, he says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And this is, this is the key verse to this passage. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. And we're going to come back and talk about this more in a moment. But then James in verse 9 moves on and says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And it seems to, like, what's James doing here? Let's look at the farmer, be patient. Oh, and by the way, like, don't grumble against one another. <laughs> Right, is James just kind of moving on to a new thought as he tends to do? I don't think so. I don't think so. The farmer, in James' example, lives in the present, planting and working the fields with a hope that the future will bring, bring a plentiful harvest. And again, this is all coming uh, from trust in God. But then in verse 9, as, as James might seem to switch gears and talking about grumbling, th think about it this way. What, what, what happens when things don't go your way? Well, what do you suppose happens to the farmer who might be waiting for the rains and waiting for his plants to, to crop up? Well, what do you suppose might happen to the farmer? Do you, do you suppose that he might grumble a bit? I, I have a friend who's a farmer. And when there's not much planting to be done, he's in the barn working on equipment, getting prepared for when the harvest comes, you know, things like that, getting prepared for planting season. And, and sometimes, according to my friend, there, there's some foul words said to the tractor. 
or to the combine, right? There's some grumbling happening in the barn because of sometimes the expense of fixing the equipment, sometimes just the struggle to even know how to fix the equipment, right? There's grumbling that happens. And I think as, as people, when things don't tend to go our way, our default can be to grumble, can it not? And sometimes that grumbling just happens in our minds, right? Some, sometimes we don't, you know, it doesn't escape, our thoughts don't escape our mouths, but sometimes our thoughts do escape the brain, right? And they come out of our mouths, and they come out towards other people. We can grumble at other people. Sometimes we can even maybe blame the problem with the tractor on somebody else, right? Maybe somebody else drove the tractor, and they didn't put it away the right way, or they didn't treat it right, they didn't treat it with care, and we can grumble and we can blame one another for the problems that are in front of us. Let's take this even a bit further. Let's think about, as came up earlier, the events of this week in our country. Right? How do you feel about what has gone on this week in our country? Um, there's been some grumbling going on, hasn't there? There's been grumbling going on for a while. It isn't new all of a sudden this week. There's been a lot of grumbling uh, in recent months, even in recent years in our country. And it seems like the grumbling is getting more and more as time goes on. People say things on social media that they would never say to your face. I don't know if this was an actual quote from Mike Tyson, but I think it was, that Mike Tyson says that the reason people say things on social media that they would never say to your face is that you can't punch somebody through a screen, right? And so we're emboldened to grumble in ways that we wouldn't maybe otherwise grumble had we not had a platform in which to grumble the way that we do. And James tells us in verse 9, don't grumble against one another, right? Regardless of, again, of how you feel about the things that have happened in, in recent weeks in our country, the other party is not your enemy. Somebody that has a different worldview than you or a different ideology, they're not your enemy. Right? We, we kind of live in a cultural moment that says that, that if I'm you know, this color, if, if I'm blue, then the reds are my enemy, and if I'm red, then the blues are my enemy. That, that's what our cultural moment dictates. But the Bible tells us is that we have a room full of people right here that, it, that if we went around and pulled the room, I guarantee that we would have a mix of ideologies, even in this room. We would have a mix of political affiliations in this room. We would have a mix of opinions about how our politics is playing out and who to vote for and who not to vote for. We'd have a mix. And one of the beautiful things about the church is that all of these people that have mixed views and mixed ideologies and, and different opinions on things come together in submission to Christ, realizing that the person sitting across from you or next to you or in front of you or behind you, even though they may think differently than you, they are not your enemy. And, and, and James is telling us, don't grumble against your brothers. Don't grumble against your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And then he gives us a reason for it, a couple of reasons. One is so that you might not be judged, right? We're told in the Bible that the standard that you use to judge other people, that standard is going to come back on you, right? So be careful the standard that you use. And then he tells us that the judge, capital J in my Bible, probably in yours too, the judge, not a judge, but the judge is standing at the door. Right? This is connected to James's statement that, that the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's standing at the door. Romans chapter 12, 
we're told that vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's not for you and I to take vengeance. It's not for you and I to grumble and to fight against one another. There's going to come a day, and this, this may be way oversimplified, but, it, but I think it rings true. Right? I said earlier, there's going to come a day when, when God will finally have redemption. All of the wrong things will be made right. Well, when that day comes, one of two things is going to happen to every person on the earth. Damnation or redemption. Everybody's going to fall on, on one side or the other, right? So, so the person that you might be tempted to grumble against, God will either give them eternal damnation in hell, and there's nothing worse that you can do to your, your very worst enemy. The worst thought that you would have towards your worst enemy is not worse than eternal damnation. Or God will fully redeem all of the ugly, broken, sinful, wrong things about that person, and there's, no, there's nothing you can do to affect that change either. And so all this ties together with James' call to be patient. Our patience as we live in God's world according to God's ways is a reflection of our faith in Him, trusting that He will indeed one day make all of the wrong things right. And let, let's be real, there, there are a lot of wrong things that happen in this world. Some of you have experienced terrible wrongs against you. And it may seem counterintuitive to say, be patient and don't complain. <laughs> and it may not be the thing that we want to hear. But the question James would ask us is, where, where is your trust in the Lord in your endeavoring to be patient? Where is your trust in the Lord in your endeavoring to not grumble? Right? There, there are plenty of things in this life which deserve grumbling. But for the Christian, for the one who, who trusts in God, for the one who follows God, the Christian should be the most patient person in the world. And we're, we're always that way. So don't, don't, like, I don't want to put rocks in your backpack today and leave you walking out the door with this heavy burden to, to say, try harder to be better. That's not the message today. But as Christians who trust in the Lord, we should be the most patient people in the world as we endeavor to live in God's world according to God's ways, trusting that He's the one who is sovereign over all and that one day He will make all of the wrong things right and He will redeem all of the ugliness, not only in my life, but in the lives, uh, the lives of others who have wronged me. And so at the end of the day, by trusting God and living in this way, we demonstrate that we have a future hope. It might not seem right now that we have a whole lot of hope. I couldn't sleep the other night and I found myself just kind of churning in my mind um, our politics in, in America. And I started thinking about, well, what if these people get in power? How is it going to go? And it, oh, it would be so much better if, if these other people were in power. It would, it would go much better. And, and that may or may not be true, right? Just speculation on, on my part. But, but I found myself thinking about the future. Where are we going to be four years from now with the direction that things seem to be heading? And I found myself grumbling and complaining about it, even in moments praying, God, don't, don't, don't let the power go this direction, right? And as I'm thinking through this passage, the Lord just reminded me, be patient. I'm sovereign. 
I've got this under control. The Bible tells us that it's God who establishes authorities and rulers and kingdoms. And for some of us in this current political cycle, this is the rubber meets the road of, of where our belief is. Right? If your party doesn't end up being the one in power, do you trust that God is sovereign over that? If politics start going a way that you're not happy with, do you believe that God is sovereign even over that? And that God can use the things that we think are wrong and abhorrent in order to accomplish His purposes. God is so much bigger than we are. And He sees so much more than we see. And He knows so much more than we know. And He's the one moving the chess pieces around the board ultimately to accomplish His purpose. And so as we think about this passage, we're thinking about future hope during present suffering. Well, what is your hope right now? Is your hope that politics are going to go this way or that way? Or is your hope that God has it under control no matter which way it goes? And that makes a difference in how we live. And then James, in verse 10, gives us another example. He says, this is an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And we don't have time today to unpack all of the Old Testament prophets, but suffice it to say, for the Old Testament prophets, when an Old Testament prophet would roll up in town, it wasn't necessarily that the town would roll out the red carpet for them, because usually the Old Testament prophets showed up and they had judgment to pronounce on the people. They didn't have nice things to say about puppies and rainbows. And so being an Old Testament prophet, like it was a difficult job. It was a hard job. But, but even more than that, let's think about even the saints of, just the saints of the Old Testament, not just the capital P prophets. My mind goes to Hebrews chapter 11, where we have kind of this, what we call the hall of fame of faith. And it talks about people like Moses and Noah and Abraham and David and Samson and some of like the big names of the Bible that, that you might know and these great things that they did for God. When Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32 the writer says, what more shall I say for time would, not, or time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith they conquered kingdoms and they enforced justice and they obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight and women received back their dead by resurrection. Holy moly. Can you imagine living through that? But it doesn't stop there. Then he says, some, some were tortured. They refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, which means they would throw rocks at you until you died. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. That doesn't sound so great, does it? And of these people, like we, we don't know the names of these people who were destitute and mistreated and afflicted and stoned and killed with the sword and sawn in two. We, we don't know their names. And it, and it says, of these people, it says that the world was not worthy of them. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. We don't know their names, but the world isn't worthy of these people that suffered great loss for the sake of Christ. 
And it says in verse 39 of Hebrews 11 that these, though they were commended for their faith, they didn't receive what was promised. Now that doesn't mean that they never received what was promised, but they didn't receive in this life maybe what they thought they were going to receive. Things didn't go their way. Things didn't go their way and they, and they didn't live long enough to see the first coming of Christ. But, but there's a guarantee that they're with Christ now. And so they ultimately received what was promised, but they didn't get that promise in this life. They didn't get this promise in the here and the now. And as James calls our attention to the prophets as an example of suffering and patience, these prophets lived in God's world according to God, God's ways. And when things weren't going very good now, their hope was not here and now. Their hope was in the future, what was to come. And that allowed them to suffer with patience. It allowed them to suffer trusting in the sovereignty of God. And then he goes on in verse 11, and he calls our attention to Job. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I don't know how many of you know the story of Job, but, but just to give you a brief kind of recap of the story of Job, is that the Bible tells us that Job was an upright man. He was righteous. He was blameless. The Bible tells us that there, there was nobody like Job. He was, he was a good dude. He was wealthy. He had a big family, successful business, right? Had lots of livestock. He feared God. Well, one day, and this is, this is kind of a crazy story in the Bible, but there was a day where we, we get a glimpse in this story of, of what happens in heaven, and there was a day where, where the devil comes before God, and he says, hey, what's up with Job over there? And God said, Job, he's, he's, he's one of mine. And the devil says that Job is only one of yours because you've blessed him in this life, because you've given him cattle and livestock, and, and, and wealth, and you've given him this big family. If all of that were to go away, then Job, he wouldn't follow you. And God is being sovereign over all. The devil is on God's leash, and he, he lets out the leash enough to say, okay, let's give it a try, and we'll see what happens. Not, not that God didn't know what was going to happen, right? And, and so the devil is allowed to take away everything that Job had. His family was killed. Every, he lost his livestock, his, everything he had he lost. Job is a long book, it's 42 chapters, and there's, you know, basically, you know, 41 of those 42 chapters are, you know, Job, um, you know, oh, woe is me, and, and despair, and agony, and, and these kinds of things. But we get to the end of the book of Job, and in Job chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, after all of this despair in Job's life, Job 42, verses 1 to 6 says that Job answered the Lord and he said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And to make a really long story short, Job comes to this moment in his life where in his present suffering, he's trusting in a future hope, trusting in who God is and God's sovereignty over his life. Even though 
This, this story went as far as Job, like all of his family died. Can you imagine that? Right? For most of us, the thing that's most near and dear to us is our families. Imagine like your family just being wiped out in a day and everything you have being wiped out in a day. This was Job. And at the end of this ordeal, Job essentially in this is saying, like, I, I submit to you, God. I submit to your will. I repent for not trusting in you, even in the midst of the most horrific, difficult thing in my life. Job lived a difficult present, but he had a hope in the future. And I hope by, the, by this time as we're making our way through a passage, you're seeing a theme develop here. Present suffering, future hope, right? And then James in verse 12 of James chapter 5 seems to switch gears once again. Right? Be patient. Look at the farmer. Look at the prophet. Look at Job. Don't grumble. Verse 12. But above all, my brothers, don't swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What in the world is James doing here, talking all of a sudden about oaths? Like, what is that? How does that fit? How does that fit with what we're talking about? Well, it's important that we understand in, in James's day, and I don't think our day is a whole lot different, but in James's day, people would take an oath without having much intent of following through on an oath, right? T- today, we might, you know, shake hands. We, we might write out an agreement and sign an agreement, right? Ba- back in, in James's day and in Jesus' day, oaths were a little bit more of a big deal than they are today. Right, but but the point is still kind of the same. Like you ever made a deal with somebody and said, you know, let's let's shake on it. Right? Have you ever have you ever sworn for something on your mother's grave, for example? Right? I'm gonna follow through with this. I swear on my mother's grave. Like that's kind of the ultimate ultimate thing that like you can't swear on anything more sacred, right, than your mom's grave. And James says, Don't do that. Don't do that. He says, just let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Don't, don't use your words to try to manipulate the things in life, is what James is saying. Because there again, this demonstrates our trust or lack thereof in God's sovereignty. But when we feel like we have to, to say things in just a certain way in order to give us a loophole to get out of something, right? This is what was happening in James's day, and, and I think this happens in our day too. Even if you sign a contract for something, we're pretty good at reading contracts and finding the loopholes, right? Finding the outs in, in contracts. And James is saying, just, just let, let your word be what it is. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Because again, this in keeping with the theme of the passage, this, this is a demonstration of where we put our trust and where we put our hope. Can I say yes to somebody or agree to something without having my way out completely figured out, James would say, sure. Right? James would say, stick to your word, and if you commit to do something, then follow through with that thing. Right? Don't, don't look for your way out. So again, here's this kind of reminder to live in God's world according to God's ways, trusting that he's sovereign over all, and that it doesn't rest on you and it doesn't rest on me to figure out the ills of the world or even the ills of my own life, right? Future hope in present difficulty. 
in verse 7, the call is to be patient, to be patient now. But that's connected to the coming of the Lord, which happens in the future. Be patient now because God will do what he said he's going to do and Jesus Christ will return. In verse 8, the call is to establish your hearts now, here and now, for the coming of the Lord in the future. Right? We don't know when that's going to happen. The Bible tells us we can't know when it's going to happen, but it, but it is going to happen. Right? We, we just got through the month of December celebrating the season of Advent where we look back to the first coming of Christ and anticipate with hope and joy and peace and love the second coming of Christ. So be patient now for the future coming. Establish your hearts now for the future coming. Do not grumble in verse 9 now so that you won't be judged in the future. Verse 11, remain steadfast now because the Lord is and will be compassionate and merciful in the future. Verse 12, do not swear or manipulate with your words now so that you won't be condemned in the future. Trust, in other words, trust the Lord now so that you won't be caught by surprise when he comes not in a place of trusting him. And so as we can see through this passage, James is calling us again to have present hope in future difficulty. And there are times, if if we're honest, like sometimes like this life just stinks, doesn't it? Sometimes life is great, but sometimes this life just stinks and we have hard things that happen to us. And in the midst of those hard things, James is reminding us, trust the Lord now because that's going to pay off. Be patient now. Establish your hearts now. Don't grumble now. Don't manipulate now because God will one day make all of the wrong things right. And we can lay our head on the pillow at night trusting that that's going to be true and it's out of my control. And I'm thankful that it's out of my control because if it were even just a little bit in my control, I would try to control the whole thing, right? And you would do that too. And so I can rest in the fact that that I don't control it. Or we can stress over the fact that we don't control it or we can rest in the fact that we don't control it because we know who does. And we know who controls the outcome of all things. So as we consider James's words, I might just leave you with a question to ponder. What is your hope now? What do you hope in now? And I'm not talking about like a wishful thinking kind of hope, like I hope I have a good day tomorrow, not, not that kind of hope. You know, are you sitting here now thinking that if, if politics would just go a certain way, that then life would be grand? Well, it's not. It's not going to be grand if politics go the way that you want it to go. Right? Are you sitting here thinking that, that if I could you know, just make a little bit more money, right? Life would be grand. Well, that's out of your control, ultimately. Right? Are you sitting here thinking, if, if, if I could just fix these relationships in my life, then, then, you know, things are going to be grand. Well, ultimately those things are out of your control too, but we know the one who controls all things. We know the one who is sovereign over all things as followers of Christ. And that's the only hope that is not going to let us down. Hope in relationships is going to let you down. Hope in your job, it's going to let you down. Hope in politics, certainly going to let you down. It has let us down, has it not? Right? But, but hope in, in who God is and, and what he's done and what he said he will do, that, that will not let us down. And as a result of our hope not letting us down, then we can be patient. 
We can be free to be patient. We can be free to not grumble. We can be free to not manipulate. And it's not a hard thing necessarily, not as hard as it could be anyway, when our hope is ultimately in Jesus Christ who will not fail us and who will wrong, who will right every single wrong, whether in this life or the next. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful today. Thankful that you love us. Thankful that you care for us. Thankful that you are the only one worthy of our hope, worthy of our trust, that you're the only source ultimately of peace, that you're the only source ultimately of our joy, that you're the only source worthy of our complete trust, allegiance, and submission. And so God, as James has reminded us today that we have a hope that isn't fully realized yet, but that we can live in the here and the now as if that hope were true and as if that hope were and will be fully realized one day. And so, Father, help us to be people of hope, people that uh, live unusually patient lives in this tumultuous world, people that live lives unusually uh, unusual in the way that we speak and act towards others because of our hope in you. We can't do that, Father, without your help. And so we ask this morning that you would help us in that way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.